This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, you're listening to the Times Redbox Politics Podcast. I'm Patrick Maguire, still in for Matt Chorley. Today, we're marking 10 years since Parliament voted for gay marriage. We'll be speaking to Matthew Paris, Maria Miller and Lynn Featherston about that in just a moment. But first, it's time for our Columnist panel. The Columnists on Times Radio. Yes, time for our all-star Columnist panel. I'm joined today by the Sunday Times' Robert Colville. Morning, Robert. Morning. And Dorothy Burns, she's a journalist and president of Murray Edwards College, Cambridge. Morning, Dorothy. Morning. How are you both doing, Robert? How are you doing? I'm I'm great. It's 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 half term, so obviously I couldn't be couldn't be happier to have my children uh, around me. Half term, and also Robert, you're a copite as well, so you must have enjoyed last night. Well, it's nice to it's nice that we yeah played uh, we won a game. I mean I'm you know. Uh, can't, can't complain. Now, now, if we can win a few more, good to be, be good to be back. Good to have heavy metal football back. Dorothy, how are you? I'm very good indeed. I'm in the middle of organising a big conference about women in science and what the features are which hold women back in being brilliant scientists to save the world. Women in science. Does that mean you have our new science secretary, Michelle Donnellan, coming? Surely she'll be top of your list. We have. Uh, I'm going to keep secret who we have. <laughs> I was hoping. I was hoping. Hoping you give me the exclusive, Dorothy. But oh well. Oh well. Uh, right. Let's get started on another uh, another conference. More more secretive than even Dorothy's uh, closely closely guarded guest list. Ditchley Park was the site allegedly of a clandestine discussion on how to rectify. Uh, rectify the errors of Brexit. This was the story broken by The Observer on Sunday. It's still being talked about in the papers. Today's Mail has an account of the gathering between Remainers and Leavers, including Michael Gove, Lord Mandelson, David Lammy, the Shadow Foreign Secretary. It reads, Over fine claret, Mandelson set out his vision for a cosier relationship with his beloved EU. And here's how the former UKIP leader and former Brexit Party leader Nigel Farage has been talking about it on his GB News show. Big meeting at Ditchley in Oxfordshire, which took place on Thursday and Friday of last week. It was chaired by Lord Mandelson. It was attended by David Lammy. But what the hell was Michael Gove and a couple of other senior retired Conservatives? What in God's name were they doing there? What in God's name were they doing there? It's uh, Is that a good question, Robert Colville, or is this all just a... Uh, a sort of a pantomime, uh, a pantomime story whipped up by both extremes of the Brexit debate. Well, I think um, it's uh, you, know, you know conferences like this happen all the you know, conferences that literally happen all the time. The great and the good um, yeah, take a you know those who those who don't have don't have jobs to do go you know go go off for a couple of days and talk to each other about how important they are and how they can how they can fix the world. And um, you know, uh, so I, so I don't I don't think there's anything sort of. St- it's all di- different from this to, to, the, to the normal ones. I think the presence of Michael Gove was unusual. I think the the fact that apparently he didn't tell Number Ten he was going was um, for, uh, w- was unusual. But I, but I mean, I think there is a. I, I think I think there's two two strands to this. The first is you know there is obviously a a, a need and a desire to to make Brexit work better. To you know the, you know, the smoother and um, more frictionless the trading relationship we have with with Europe, the better. When we are facing down. Um, uh, you know Vladimir Putin's um, you know, naked fascist aggression. 
you know, we, there are, you know, it is very, very important that we're not um, fighting and squabbling amongst ourselves. That said, it's also important that um, we don't, um, you know, we, we don't sort of end up with a, you know, with a sort of a bad photocopy of EU membership, which um, doesn't have any of the advantages of Brexit and um, and only only gives us the the downsides. But but I think the the second element is obviously that this is meat and drink to to Nigel Farage and, and people like him, um, because you know the you know a, a very heavy element of Brexit has always been as, as with every similar movement throughout history has has always been a a suspicion and, re, and resentment of the elites and the fact that you know the the, the, the whole idea of take back and take back control was sort of based around this idea that um you know that they are remote they are unaccountable and you need to you know you need to um to tell them what for and so and this absolutely plays plays into that narrative yeah it's sort of politics has decided in smoke-filled rooms and parties that have more in common with each other you know i.e peter mandelson and michael gove labor men and conservative men uh, respectively breaking bread uh, at a country house as you say it's sort of uh, it's meat and drink to uh, euroskeptics who want to cast people as a uh, as an out of touch uh, elite if, the, if that's the sort of uh, if that's the sort of image they're painting and given that peter mandelson and michael gove are not trusted by either extreme of the uh, of the brexit debate michael gove never seen as a true brexiteer peter mandelson uh, very much on the remain side of course during that debate uh, but dorothy you know the the sort of um the sort of lurid retellings of this conference aside um the fundamental point at play here do you think it's time that we did reopen a discussion about whether brexit is working and how uh, cross-party consensus might be found on making it work better is that is that a sensible thing to do lots of people might say yes well yes but first i should say for a secret conference it wasn't really very good at being secret was it (laughs) because i've read all about it in every newspaper in britain and i think if you want to have a secret conference don't invite loads and loads of people (laughs) Um, if I have a secret meeting, I try to keep it quite small. And I, if I was having a secret meeting, I wouldn't invite Michael Gove. I just would think maybe it might end up not being secret. Oh, are you suggesting um, that but, M- Michael Gove, former journalist, uh, uh, is good at uh, is good well, at talking to other journalists? What we do is, as journalists, we all talk to each <laughs> other. The idea, if you look at the list of people there, that that was ever going to be secret is ludicrous. I have some sympathy with the idea that actually to sort out Brexit, there shouldn't be secret meetings of people in posh houses. I I don't think you need to be Nigel Farage to say that if we're going to talk about Brexit, that should be done openly. But on the other hand, when you look at what they were talking about, there weren't any secrets in what they talked about they were saying the absolute obvious, which is Brexit isn't working and we need to do something about that. We shouldn't be talking about that secretly. We should be talking about that openly far more. And I think the idea of people across different parties talking about it is good, but this has been really counterproductive because it has made it look like there's a secret elite establishment controlling Britain when the truth is I don't think there's anybody controlling Britain it seems to be running out of control as far as I can make out well as Dominic Cummings famously said about getting into number 10 you realize there is no room and there are no ninjas running the country Uh, Robert um, do you think Dorothy's right that you know that actually there is uh, settled consensus across both parties that Brexit isn't working as well as it should. Certainly that's what Keir Starmer is saying, albeit tentatively, you know, there is room for improving the uh, the Brexit deal. Bloomberg reported last week that Rishi Sunak was looking to reopen discussions with the EU on improving the way these things worked on a range of areas. Um, you know, the, the sort of optics of this, you know, clandestine meeting it ditchly aside, clandestine or not, do you think uh, it's revealed a deeper truth about where we are in the Brexit debate? So, I, so the polling shows quite clearly that an increasing number of people don't think, um, you know, don't think Brexit was working. But I think you get very, very different analysis of, analyses of why that is. So obviously, there's the Northern Ireland issue and the, um, and especially um, the, you know, the the the, the rules that are applied to to supermarket goods and you know goods which were never intended to cross, to cross the border. And I think that's been the focus of the, of the Northern Ireland protocol. And that's what quite a lot of people mean when they say Brexit isn't working. But then you divide into two camps. You have the people. Um, 
who uh, who would say Bre who say we haven't taken advantage of the opportunities of Brexit. That um, you know the the, the the part of the the whole point was to take a short term hit for a long term. Uh, you know, for, for, for to make ourselves a more agile, better regulated economy um, in, in the long term, to position ourselves to trade with the um, fastest growing nations, to see, you know, to to get get a regulatory advantage in the industries of the future, and would argue that the government has absolutely not been agile enough in in doing that. That you know, instead of making ourselves more competitive compared to Europe, we have made ourselves less competitive compared to Europe, and you know that, that that's you know, uh, you know that, that would be a very good chunk of the Tory party who'd think that, including mo most people who, can, who campaign for Brexit. And then on the other hand, you have the people on, on the left who'd say, you know, that the, you know the, the, the answer is that, you know, we left the EU, we, we, we then had some, you know, the economy then went awful, which obviously has a lot more to do with the pandemic and Putin than it does to, with Brexit, but never mind. But, and the, the solution is to um, build the, the closest possible relationship to, to the EU. So I think, you know, there's there 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 is there is that tension um, tension uh, there uh, for, for sure. But I I, th I think um, you know I I think I I, th I think people like Starmer are, are, are sort of in the space of pragmatic solutions or or trying to appear as though they are seeking pragmatic solutions um, because you know Labour is currently doing very well in the polls and the absolute last thing it wants to do is have headlines about how it's trying to um, drag the UK back into. Uh, the uh, welcoming embrace, welcoming slash stifling embrace of Brussels. And now the spy balloon story has gripped the US and indeed the UK. You could even watch the most recent one uh, being shot down live on Fox News. And here's the White House press secretary talking about it last night. I know there have been questions and, and concerns about this, but there is no, again, no indication of aliens or extraterrestrial activity with these recent takedowns. Again, there is no indication of aliens or terrestrial activity with these recent takedowns. Wanted to make sure that the American people knew that, all of you knew that, uh, and it was important for us to say that from here because we've been hearing a lot about it. Um, I, I, I'm not... I, I'm just, you know, I loved E.T., the movie, but I'm, I'm just going to leave it there. <laughs> UFOs aside, Dorothy, how scared or otherwise should we be of China? The Times is reporting today that TikTok, owned by a Chinese uh, state firm, of course, is collecting more personal information than other social media uh, apps. Obviously, there have been lots of stories. Um, you, you might be aware of this, given you'll of course be aware of this, given your work at Cambridge about links between the Chinese state and, and British higher education institutions. What what is to be done about our you know complex and increasingly difficult relationship with China? Well, first of all, I think we should be worried about uh, the fact that in a huge democracy, they could even have such a serious discussion about whether it was extraterrestrial. Uh, the US really depresses you at times, but I think we should be really, really worried. Uh, and uh, it might sound strange to say, but I wake up in the morning sometimes and I think I'm really worried about the threat that the Chinese government poses to my children and grandchildren. I am. And I think we should have this major review. I think you know, I have wondered how many of these balloons have we had over Britain that we haven't noticed. And I'm very concerned about TikTok. And I think we should look at the role of China in UK universities. Yes, of course. Uh, Robert, do you agree? Do you worry about the impact of China on your uh, on your young son's lives to come? I think um, the um, it, it is one of the most fascinating transformations in public opinion in the last in the last few years. Um, yeah, within the Conservative Party and within the Labour Party is the extent of um, to which suddenly people are, are, are focusing on China and talking about China. So, uh, as Dorothy mentioned, the government are um, are reviewing their security strategy, are basically sort of re, you know, doing another pass at their integrated review. Um, to take account of, of the latest events. I, I, I don't really quite understand why the Chinese are sending balloons over when they already control the Wi-Fi and the 5G, but that's, um, <laughs> that's um, you know, I'll leave that to the to the um, espionage experts. Uh, are, um, you, are you on TikTok, Robert? I'm not on TikTok. I think, um, I think the world would implode if I went on TikTok. 
what such would be the overwhelming demand for you uh, yeah, there was a, dancing, it, it, I'm sure. It, 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 it would be like watching your grandfather try to try to try to dance uh, to, the, to, to the latest chart hits. It yeah, would be something rapping, rapping no about really planning wants. reform, twerking to uh, the Geospatial <laughs> Commission or something. Dorothy, are you, well, on, you're I, on, are you on TikTok? Well, I think the, the problem is that um, the young people of the United Kingdom are all on TikTok. So for us as a college to reach potential applicants, Cambridge and, applicants mm. and that's what we want to do because a big thing for our college is reaching out to people who might not normally have thought of uh, applying to Cambridge. That's vital for us and they are on TikTok. That's their, their biggest thing. So the fact that potentially opens our access to a user's entire um, data on their phone is, is indeed really concerning. And we have to review exactly what that means. And then perhaps we have to be saying to young people, don't be on TikTok. And Robert, government departments will be having this, this discussion as well about whether they should be using TikTok. Yeah. Yeah, and there's, there's, a, there's a fascinating thing as, as, as well here, which is that um, so TikTok is a is a basically a, a version of a, um, a, a site in China. It's a site in China, and so TikTok's the UK version. But um, I, I have I haven't looked into this myself, but I'm told that the um, the, the settings on the algorithms are completely different. So um, if you're a Chinese a young Chinese user of get TikTok, you get instructive videos about how to. Uh, you know um how to learn you know learn basket weaving or uh, you know glorious events in chinese history and if you're a western user you get your brain fried by um you know endless uh, videos of people doing incredibly stupid things so you know, so, 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 but also misinformation there is misinformation being put out on tiktok and i think that is the other thing that we need to look at and its capacity to increase that misinformation and undermine our democracy further. Would you go as far, Dorothy, as to say uh, we should ban TikTok as, as Donald Trump tried to and uh, Conservative MPs like Alicia Kearns, the uh, chair of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee, have said in recent days people should delete TikTok from their phones? Would you go that far? Well, you could tell people to delete TikTok, but they're not going to do it, are they? I, I think we need to find out more about it and then we need to inform the users of it so that they can make up their own minds. Uh, Robert, final thought from you? Yeah, I think, I mean, it's interesting. On um, on Twitter, you get a thing saying, you know, Chinese state media or, you know, UK state media against some accounts, but you you don't get that kind of thing on Twitter. I mean, Trump's thing was to try and actually get, basically get TikTok sold to a, a US entity. So it would be um, to, to, um, to cut, sort of cut the rope. And I, I think that, that, that might be worth revisiting. That was Robert Colville and Dorothy Byrne. Remember, you can read Robert in the Sunday Times every week. Just head to thetimes.co.uk to get yourself a digital subscription. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind when all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync things just flow wherever you are tap the banner to go to monday.com there's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care plush care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe fda approved weight loss medications like wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss that's plushcare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Times Redbox Politics Podcast. Now it's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. 
Today we're looking at the historic step taken by Parliament a decade ago this month when MPs voted overwhelmingly to give gay couples the equal right to marry. Up until that point, same-sex couples could enter into civil partnerships, but that vote in February 2013 put same-sex marriages on the same legal footing as those of heterosexual couples. It was a real moment of change, of course, after almost half a century after homosexuality was legal in Britain, and it was a big moment too for the Conservative Party, then led, of course, by David Cameron in a coalition government with the Liberal Democrats. Now, I've been speaking to Maria Miller, the minister who steered the bill through the Commons despite opposition from a majority of Tory MPs, and Baroness Featherstone, who was plain old Lynn Featherstone, was the Liberal Democrat minister who pushed to make the legislation happen in the first place. But first, I'm joined by the Times columnist and, of course, former former Tory MP, Matthew Paris. Good morning, Matthew. Good morning. Thanks for joining us. Um, let's start by hearing part of David Cameron's conference speech from 2011. It was his second conference speech as Prime Minister, and this is the message he had for his party. I don't support gay marriage in spite of being a Conservative. I support gay marriage because I am a Conservative. Quite a bold line for a Conservative leader, even in 2011. Um, can you explain just how long a journey the Tory party had taken to that point, Matthew? Well, yes, it's not just the length of the journey, but the complete U-turn that the journey has involved. The, the Conservative government was uh, in the 20th century was involved in Section 28, which was, uh, well, that's what it came to be called. And it, that was a law that prohibited local authorities or local education authorities from, in inverted commas, promoting, close quote, homosexuality as a, a normal relationship. And, and that drove a lot of people uh, against the Conservative Party and drove quite a few of us into campaigning for uh, homosexual equality. The campaigning group Stonewall, of which I, I was a, a founder member, was probably, I think it's fair to say, might never have formed ourselves had it not been for Section 28. So there was this huge opposition um, right across the political spectrum, and including from many Conservatives like me. Um, Margaret Thatcher, she never stopped Section 28. She never seemed particularly interested in Section 28. But when David Cameron came to be leader of the party, well, I, I, I shouldn't leave uh, John Major out because John Major reduced the age of mm. consent from 21 to 18. That was the first time it had been reduced since uh, 1967, I think, uh, when the 21 limit was put in. But when David Cameron came to power, basically, he wanted to do two things. Firstly, I know him a little bit. He really did believe uh, in homosexual equality. He really did believe in the gay marriage idea. It was it was a personal credo and, and really quite a passionate one. But secondly, he was very keen to establish a break between the Conservative Party of the 20th century and the Conservative Party he was going to lead. He wanted to show that it was kind of modern, that it liked the century that it was living in, and, and that, that a spirit of tolerance breathed through the party. So he was making, you're right, a bold, perhaps risky political decision, but it was actually a self-interested political decision for the kind of Conservative Party he wanted. But he was also doing something in which he believed. Uh, we can, we've been speaking about Mrs Thatcher in Section 28. Let's listen uh, to her speaking on that very subject in 1987. Children who need to be able to express themselves in clear English are being taught political slogans. Children who need to be taught to respect traditional moral values are being taught that they have an inalienable right to be gay. All of those children are being cheated of a sound start in life. Yes, cheated. Now, she's obviously making a, a broader point which played into contemporary debates about Labour local authorities, but on the, the sort of rhetoric she's using about, uh, you know, Section 28 and, 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 and gay people there, is that broadly representative, if you think, of public attitudes, official attitudes uh, during your time uh, in Parliament uh, in the, uh, from 79 to, to the mid-'80s? Well, I would distinguish between public attitudes and official attitudes. That is broadly representative of the official attitude. I remember the, the late Walter Harrison, Labour uh, Deputy Chief Whip, 
taking me aside as a young MP and saying, steer clear of these issues. We really don't want anything like this. There, there, there was broad consensus amongst politicians. The public, though, and I don't think politicians had noticed this, the, the public had begun to move. The media had begun to move. Attitudes towards homosexuality were gradually softening and in many cases really becoming quite open, quite quite tolerant. And I think that it was rather a logjam. The, the political world hadn't noticed this. So all she was doing was expressing what most members of Parliament at that time would have, have said. And in her case, it was also part of an attack on the what was then called the loony left, mm. uh, Ken Livingston, all that kind of thing. And this was all kind of folded in to the looniness of, of the left, that those times have, have completely passed now. And indeed, you talk about people not noticing or not wanting to talk about these debates. You've written uh, very entertainingly about trying to actually come out in a late night debate in Northern Ireland on the common, in the Commons, but nobody really noticing that you, yeah, that's, right, that's what you yes. tried to do. Yes, yes. I mean, uh, if you want to keep a secret, you know, make an announcement uh, in a late night debate in the House of Commons. It, the Sun newspaper did ring me and say, did I want to say that I was gay? And I said, I said what I wanted to say in, the, in, in that speech, which stopped just short of saying that I was gay. And I wish that I'd, I'd gone the, the extra few inches. Yes, and it, you know, it would be a decade, you know, almost two decades until Alan Duncan, the first Conservative MP, to come out as gay would, would do so. So you would have been uh, well ahead of the curve there. But, you know, even by the late 1990s, um, when cabinet ministers uh, Nick Brown and Peter Mandelson, uh, their sexual orientations are, are, are made known. Uh, newspapers are asking whether Britain is being run by a by a gay mafia, and yet within fifteen marriage, uh, fifteen years, gay marriage is, is legalised by a Tory government. What what changes in that period? Is it just a case of po- political culture catching up uh, with public opinion? I do think so. Uh, that that are we being ruled by a gay mafia was a Sun headline as far as I remember and the Sun was actually rather out of touch with 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 most of its its readers I don't think there was a sort of huge wave of 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 pro-gay liberation sentiment sweeping the country but there was what I would describe it as a huge shrug of the shoulders was sweeping the country by that time if a shrug of the shoulders can sweep the country uh, people just thought well why don't people just get on with their lives we're, 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 it, it's none of our business and I always found in those early debates in the 20th century that the none of our business argument was was the clincher you couldn't necessarily persuade people that it was good to be gay you couldn't persuade them that they would like their own sons or daughters to be gay but you would get a, an instant nod from but the what other people do in the privacy of their own homes is none of my business. It's interesting now ass- assessing public opinion across the con- uh, opinion across the Conservative Party parliamentary opinion. Just as it's difficult now to find anyone who'll admit to being in favour of the invasion of Iraq, you're more likely yes. to find a Conservative MP who was around the time to say they either regretted their vote or had they been in Parliament they would have definitely definitely voted for it, which is itself the most powerful testament to the shift in public opinion that has followed that vote a decade ago, isn't it? That even people who voted on principle grounds now say, well, I wish I'd voted for it. I I spoke uh, around that time to my own Member of Parliament. He's now in the House of Lords, Patrick McLaughlin, the MP for Derbyshire Dales. He's a friend. And I said, Patrick, you voted against civil partnerships and and now you're voting in favour of gay marriage. Why? And he gave the most honest answer, the kind of thing you don't really expect from a politician. He said, well, I was wrong the first time and I didn't want to be wrong the second time. And that was that. Attitudes had changed. Well, Matthew Paris, uh, former Conservative MP and Times columnist, thanks very much for joining us to talk through uh, just how long a journey and uh, difficult a journey the Conservative Party and British society in general have been on leading up to and following that 2013 vote uh, on gay marriage. Now, I've been speaking to two ministers from the coalition government about that vote in 2013 and how they steered it through the Commons despite the hostility of many 
Conservative MPs. The day the Commons voted to back gay marriage in February 2013. It was a big moment not just for the Conservative Party, but for their coalition partners, the Liberal Democrats. Now, the Equalities Minister, who first proposed the legislation, later spearheaded by David Cameron and cited as his very proudest achievement in office, was Lynn Featherston, now Baroness Featherston. David Cameron did say it was his proudest moment in government, but does she see it the same way? Not at all. And he does cling to it like a a life raft. But to be fair, without the prime minister's support, it might not have fared so well. Um, It's the only thing he can point to, apparently, during during the coalition years that he is proud of. Um, And it was it it was me. It wasn't in the manifestos. It wasn't in the coalition agreement. But in their wisdom, they made me a qualities minister. But because the Lib Dem ministers in the coalition knew so very little about government, we didn't have any predecessors, really. Um, they sent us to the Institute of Government and um, to be talked to by people who did know how to be ministers. And they chose Michael Heseltine and Andrew Adonis. And Michael Heseltine said, um, you're going to be really busy and you'll work from morning to night. But if you actually want to do anything that you went into politics for, decide on one or two things and and push them as hard as you can, prioritise them. And Andrew Adonis said, trust your civil servants. He said, it's not like yes, minister. It was exactly like yes, minister. But (laughs) but he said, if you don't direct your civil servants, they will um, keep you busy from seven in the morning to midnight every day. Five years will pass and you will have been a very good, very busy minister, but you will have achieved nothing. And literally on the walk back from the Institute of Government to the Home Office, because I was Home Office Minister and Equalities Minister, um, equal marriage popped into my head. And I got back to my office and I said to one of my then private secretaries, how do I get policy into government? And he said, well, Minister, you have to write the wording. You have to send it to your Secretary of State. She has to approve it and she has to write round to the Cabinet. That's how it started. And um, when you say David Cameron uh, regards it as the proudest thing he's done, I mean, I'm glad he does, but it wasn't him. But he did support it because when it went round to cabinet, once Theresa had decided she would support it, there were two objectors. And any and that other... was Theresa May. She was Equality Secretary as well as Home yes. Secretary. Uh, yes, she was the Equalities Minister. That's right, as well as Home Secretary. So she did the right round to the cabinet and there were two minister, uh, two secretaries of state who objected. Uh, that was Philip Hammond and Ian Duncan Smith and Cameron did overrule them. But part of my calculation was always that Cameron wanted rehabilitation. You know, the Tory party named the nasty party by Theresa May herself mm. um, was trying to battle its reputation for homophobic past, which it definitely did have. And David Cameron did get battered by his association chairman. Obviously, all the organized religions in the world came banging on my door, Theresa's door and David Cameron's door. And he stuck with it, although he said he wished wished he hadn't because he didn't realize how many people it was going to upset. When you think back to the case they were making against the bill, um, many of them tried to make what they thought was, including some of your, a handful of your Liberal Democrat colleagues were making the case that um, it would, you know, about religious freedom and and similar points. Yes. Looking back yes. now, 10 years on, do you think any of their criticisms were vindicated at all? Or it's quite remarkable now because it's a, a settled consensus, but at the time it was much more controversial mm-hmm. than we'd, we'd think. There was war in the land. I mean, battalions rose up from from the Catholic Church, the Church of England, and so on, and Muslims. And um, the the big organized religions of the world thought it was hell on sticks, really. And um, I remember writing an article, and I think it went in the Telegraph, which was headlined, The Church Doesn't Own Marriage, which it doesn't. Um, but the the onslaught I got from that, from all of the religious fraternities, was was massive. And what is so remarkable, as you gently suggest, is the day after it became law, no one blinked an eyelid. You know, you see it all the time. Each stage of this equality battle has been fought. I mean, by brave, brave people like Peter Tatchell. And, you know, the credit really goes to all of 
the LGBT community who fought and battled and got killed for this cause. I'm just a liberal who wandered into government at the right moment in time and thought, of course, I'm in government. I must do this. <laughs> and, and almost 10 years to the week, the Church of England have now finally decided to approve same-sex blessing after... Sort of. Sort of, <laughs> yes, of course. Sort after of. many, many years of quite fevered debate inside the church. Do you think they've gone far enough? No, no, I think this is a sop to the, you know, the voices are rising for equality in in the church um, itself. And I think they've taken the tiniest step possible that they could, which is a sort of blessing. But as I understand it, not that different from what they're willing to do if you have a pet you want blessed. So I think they're a long way off. But I would say to the archbishop, personally, do not understand that someone can be asked to choose between their religion and their sexuality. I, I, I don't get that. And I would have thought if the church were wise with its diminishing numbers, the more encompassing it could be and the more loving it could be would be an excellent move forward. This is the tiniest step they could get away with, in my view. And, and just briefly, Lynn, before I let you go, has... David Cameron said thank you yet? Never. Never mentioned me, not once. Well, that was Baroness Featherston, the Liberal Democrat minister, who first proposed uh, equal marriage legislation. But it was the Culture Secretary, the Conservative Culture Secretary, Maria Miller, who had the job of defending the bill as it enjoyed a bumpy ride in the Commons. Here's a flavour of some of the opposition from the Conservative benches. There are many major issues this country needs to deal with. This is an irrelevance and it should not be pursued through the House. Who are we, this government or this country, to redefine the term marriage that has meant one man and one woman across cultures, across ages, across geographical boundaries? What, I ask, is the Conservative Party for? Indeed, we are alienating people who have voted for us for all their lives, leaving them with no one to vote for. Isn't the truth of it that this is about low political calculation and detoxifying the Tory brand rather than anything to do with principle? We are doing this uh, very clearly as an important part of the way that we can make this country a fairer place to live. The eyes to the right, 400. The nose to the left, 175. So the eyes have it. The eyes have it. So as we've just heard, it's perhaps easy now, 10 years on, to forget the scale of opposition from within the Conservative Party to equal marriage, uh, both at the grassroots and in Parliament. Uh, 70% of local association chairs said that it would damage David Cameron. Uh, You use your 2012 conference speech to warn activists that the party and the coalition won't back down. What was the atmosphere like within the party at the time? Well, I I think it wasn't just the atmosphere within the Conservative Party, it was the atmosphere within the whole country, which was very split on the issue of equal marriage. If you remember back to the days just before I had the responsibility given to me for passing this piece of legislation, a consultation had been done, which had elicited more than a quarter of a million responses. And that's unsurprising, because I think in many ways it was a piece of legislation which was trying to change attitudes in society rather than reflecting changes that had already happened. On the eve of the vote, you write in The Times, if a couple love each other, then the state should not stop them getting married unless there is good reason. And being gay is not reason enough. That's a that's a sort of conservative case for gay marriage. David Cameron said he backed gay marriage not in spite of his conservatism, but because of his conservatism. Why, though, do you think that 136 of your Tory MP colleagues ended up voting against it? I think in many ways Parliament was confused. Society was confused. Why haven't civil partnerships dealt with this? Why did we need to go a stage further? That was a lot of the discussion in the second reading debate. But it was also about the very unique situation the Church of England is in. So I think it would be simplistic to say that it was simply a groundswell of grassroots opposition. I think the complicated nature of church and state in the UK were being played out through some of those arguments. So for me, there was a real need to iron out these complications, particularly to the Church of England. Would you have expected the Church of England to still be debating this question and its own uh, relationship with same-sex marriage law, the extent to which it's prepared to condone same-sex marriages a full decade on? 
well, obviously, the Church of England is part of the Anglican Church, which is a broad church uh, with members from Africa to the United States. The, the members of the Church of England I meet are on a regular basis, uh, many of whom are, are concerned that they can't recognise marriage between two people of the same sex in the way they'd like to. But those issues are for, for the Anglican Church to debate and should never be for politicians to get too, too involved in. It was obviously a momentous series of parliamentary debates, very emotive How did it feel arguing for something from the dispatch box that you knew had become a political football, that you knew was being weaponised to undermine your party leader and was opposed by so many of your colleagues? Uh, Well, when it comes to equality issues, too often they become weaponised and uh, that isn't my approach to it at all. I I think equality issues should be where we take politics out of it. Uh, So I was, yeah, I was disappointed when some were, uh, took the opportunity to make political points, but most of the points that were made and most of my colleagues was done from a point of, of principle, particularly around the impact on the church and of course, it, it, it's very easy. And I was rereading some of the some of the debates quite recently. And it's easy to have a concern that when it comes to organisations like the uh, you know Equality and Human Rights Commission, or or you know looking at the European Court of Human Rights, as to whether or not they might in some way interfere in the will of Parliament and unpick the protections that have been put in there for the church. So I think if you reread the debates, you see that a lot of that opposition was coming from a point of concern for how others might interpret the law. Of course, those concerns have been uh, found, as I as I knew they would be, to be completely baseless. And therefore, um, what we have seen is an Equal Marriage Act that has helped more than 30,000 people be married, something they wouldn't have been able to be otherwise. And now on an ongoing basis, around 6,000 people uh, of in same-sex relationships being married every year, far outstripping anything that civil partnerships ever achieved and demonstrating uh, that when it comes to marriage, it's something special, something that society recognises. Do you think that vote and that legislation has changed the Conservative Party for the better? Uh, well, look, I, I think this isn't about politics. I think equality should always be about society. I think it's changed society for the better. For, for me, the power of the Equal Marriage Act was the signal it sent to people in same-sex relationships, which was not that you can just get married, but that society respects you in the same way as it respects any other couple in the country. And it is the only piece of legislation I've ever been involved in, where people came up to me on the street, strangers, complete strangers, came up to me on the street and shook my hand and said thank you. And just finally, Maria Miller, um, some people saw parallels between moves to liberalise transgender legislation and uh, and gay rights. But do you now accept, given the political controversy at Holyrood and at Westminster, that there, is a, there isn't a straightforward path to the reforms to the Gender Recognition Act, the self-ID reforms that, that you backed so decisively a few years ago? I, I think that it's another example of where society is not uh, where the legislation needs to be. When when I was chairing the Women and Equality Select Committee five or six years ago, we did a report on the issues facing transgender people. Reform of the Gender Recognition Act was not top of our list of things to be changed. I have to say most of the more than 30 recommendations in that report centred around reform to the NHS, particularly the lack of evidence with regards to the treatment of children who were facing gender dysphoria and indeed the lack of access to some basic health care. The government decided to focus on the GRA personally, I think, without doing the necessary rolling of the pitch beforehand. And I think people misinterpreted it from the start and that has caused issues. doesn't mean to say that we don't need to do what many other countries around the world have done and demedicalize transgender. Uh, it isn't a mental health condition as we currently treat it in UK law. So there is a need to change 
the law, uh, but there's also a need for the government to perhaps do a little bit of preparation. And what there's certainly a need for is for us to take the politics out of this and, and also the very binary way in which people are talking about trans issues. We do need to change, whether that requires a change in the law first, I doubt. I think it requires a change in attitudes. And I think the government's got to take a leading role in that uh, to take some of the very unnuanced debate out off the table um, and start to make sure that we treat everybody in this country with the dignity and respect that they deserve. That was Matthew Paris, Maria Miller and Lynn Featherston marking 10 years since Parliament voted to legalise gay marriage. Now it's time for our new feature, What If? And today we're asking, what if Edward VIII had never given up the throne? I spoke a little bit earlier to Andrew Lowney. He's histor- he's a historian. He also has the Thunderer column on the iniquities of freedom of information law in this morning's Times. And also, more pertinently, he's the biographer who wrote a book on Edward, Traitor King, on his, uh, on his exile in the Bahamas and in Paris after his abdication. So he's a good man to ask uh, about what might have been, how he might have behaved... Uh, as king had he stayed on the throne. I began by asking him if Edward might have kept the crown and with it his wife with a morganatic marriage. That means Wallace Simpson would have become his uh, his wife but not his queen. Yes, and in fact he had a morganatic marriage in the end. Uh, but he was advised, for example, he could have kept her as a mistress, he could have married her after the coronation. Uh, so there were plenty of, of, of options. Uh, in some ways, he was painted into a corner, uh, partly because they didn't really want him to be king, and he didn't really want to be king himself. And Wallace was a convenient excuse. But it's extraordinary to think that if he had uh, come to uh, the throne in 1937, and in fact, with the coronation, he would have reigned probably until 1972. Uh, the Queen's Jubilee would have been a 50th anniversary Jubilee. Uh, and he might well have had a child. He'd had certainly several illegitimate children. There's a man called Tim Celia, I name in my book, still alive, who was born in 1935. But Wallace was only 40 in 1936. Uh, and there's a possibility that she might have had children and we would have a, a completely different um, line of succession. He told Stanley Baldwin, Edward VIII, if I could marry her as king, well and good, I would be happy and in consequence, a better king. Do you agree? Well, I mean, he did marry her and uh, they were both appalling people who continue to be appalling people. So I don't think he would have been a better king. I think he would have actually been a worse king because one of the great concerns was that he was interfering in constitutional matters. And particularly, uh, he was uh, cozying up to the Nazis. His cousins, the Duke of Saxe-Coburg and Prince Philip of Hesse, were both uh, Nazi generals. Uh, they'd been sent across basically to soften him up uh, and there'd also been pressure put on Wallace through various intermediaries, including von Ribbentrop, the German ambassador in London. So one of the great concerns was that he was indiscreet. He was leaving his red boxes open. Nazi people, Nazi officers were coming to stay with him at um, Fort Belvedere and seeing this material. Uh, but he tried to interfere, for example, in the Anglo-Naval, German naval agreement of 1935. He tried to play down the occupation of the Rhineland in March 1936. So this was what was sending alarm bells throughout Whitehall uh, and why they had to get rid of him. They'd encouraged him to take up steeplechasing in the hope that he would kill himself. But when that failed, they had to find plan B. It's interesting, the politics of this situation, the domestic politics, the parliamentary politics during the abdication crisis were very interesting. Churchill, who at the time was uh, close to... Uh, the king, he was his oldest friend in Parliament, uh, wanted to humiliate the government and saw uh, the abdication crisis as a device to do so. Beaverbrook, who is the most powerful press man of the age, of course, is also a strong supporter. Do you think a king's party, as was mooted at the time, the king's men in Parliament, could have succeeded in emerging as a new political force had things turned out differently? No, I don't think so. Um, uh, and one of the problems was, as Churchill said, our cock won't fight. So there were supporters, though Churchill, when he realised what an awful person the Duke of Windsor was, actually uh, became less sympathetic to him and actually threatened him with court-martial during the Second World War for his treachery. Um, no, I don't think there would ever be a King's Party. But it's interesting that in 1940, the Duke of Windsor came back and intrigued with Beaverbrook against Chamberlain. Uh, and Beaverbrook, in fact, wrote the chapter in the Duke's own memoirs on the abdication crisis because the Duke, frankly, couldn't remember what had happened. So it was constructed by Beaverbrook, who was there. 
You call him in your book, Andrew Lowney, the traitor king. And how, how do you think his obvious Nazi sympathies affect the war effort? Because in his memoirs, he writes that he had been all for Mr Winston Churchill in his campaign to rearm Britain and was very sensitive to the accusation that he was a traitor and would have gladly been the uh, puppet king of a Nazi-occupied Britain or Britain in a Nazi-occupied Europe. And obviously, if he is king during the war, it's probably more difficult for Churchill or whoever the Prime Minister is to ship him off to the Bahamas as they uh, did as as governor at the time. So how do you think it affects the war effort if Edward VIII is still on the throne? Well, I think it would be very different. Uh, uh, as you say, he wouldn't have been shipped off to the Bahamas. He would have been sounding off as he was um, uh, as the Duke of Windsor. He would have uh, been intriguing with the Americans to keep them out of the war. Uh, and uh, he would have been uh, sending over chores to the Germans as he had been before the war. So, uh, I mean, though his brother George VI was also uh, an appeaser, uh, by Munich, George VI had realised that they would have to fight Germany. I don't think the Duke of Winter ever came to that conclusion. And of course, the great difference was that he was sympathetic to the what he called the Führer Prinzip. So who knows what would have happened? I mean, clearly we live in a, in a democracy and the monarch has limited powers. But I think he would have been a very powerful uh, voice for some sort of accommodation with the Germans in order to focus on saving the British Empire and turning everyone's attention on, on the Soviet Union. Is the monarchy, Andrew Lanny, still around today if King Edward VIII keeps his throne? Yes, I think so. I mean, you know, what would probably have happened is uh, it would have been passed across to the Queen uh, and we would have had the succession, but it would have just been a very, it would have just taken another 20 years for it to happen. That's all we got time for on the Redbox podcast today. I'll be back tomorrow. Make sure you like and subscribe in the meantime, wherever you get your podcast from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.